One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and we've got a very special interview on today's episode. In 2017, Britain was hit by five major terror attacks. Four were carried out by Islamist extremists in Westminster, where five people died, including a police officer. The Manchester Reining Bob... Uh, the Manchester Arena bombing, which killed 22 people, the London Bridge attack, which left eight dead, and 30 people were injured in a bombing on a tube at Parsons Green. In the same year, a van was driven into Muslim worshippers near Finsbury Park Mosque, leaving one man dead. A major review of those incidents by Lord Anderson called for better cooperation between the security services and the police. It will lead to the creation of the new National Counter-Terrorism Operations Centre, or CTOC, bringing together a counter-terrorism policing, UK intelligence community and other parts of the criminal justice system into just one location. And two men tasked with trying to make all this work join me now. Ken McCallum is the Director-General of MI5 and is here for his first ever interview since taking over the role as the head of Britain's domestic spy agency a year ago. Hello, Ken. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me. No, nice to have you here. And also Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu is Head of Counter-Terrorism Policing. He's also recently thrown his hat into the ring to be the, the next Commissioner of the Met Police. Hello, Neil. Hello, Matt. I'm not sure that last line is strictly true. But, uh, <laughs> we but can come to that. that. We can come to that. Your hat is quite near the ring, if not necessarily uh, in it. And it, we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk in a moment about this, this the CTOC and how, we, how you hope this will this all mean that your organisations and others work uh, more closely together. But, Ken, as this is your first interview as head of MI5, um, you, you took over last year, uh, just well, in April last year, just as we were going into, uh, well, we were in lockdown. Uh, but you've been in the organisation for, for more than two decades. So how does someone who went to a state school in Glasgow end up as the head of MI5? So, yeah, I've been doing uh, MI5's work for 25 years. And if I'm honest, I found my way into it slightly to my own surprise. I grew <laughs> up, as you say, in Glasgow, a uh, regular family, regular state school, and didn't grow up imagining for one minute that I would end up what did working you th- what in did MI5. You think were, what do you think you were going to be? So what I, my uncle was a postman, and I always thought that might be a good job because you could be off in the afternoons. <laughs> uh, but in my case, what actually happened was I applied for mainstream government jobs and there was a brief period during which an, an option existed to have a no-commitment conversation in parallel with MI5. And I went along kind of really out of curiosity. You know, who wouldn't want to see the inside of a spy headquarters? And I liked the people that I met. I liked their sense of purpose. And I also liked the fact that they, they didn't seem to be dragging around, around large eagles. And 25 years on, I'm still there. And what did you do? Obviously, not getting into the specifics, but your job uh, during those 25 years before you ended up where you are now, what, was, what, what, what were you doing? So for the first decade or so, my job was working on Northern Ireland uh, in relation to the peace process and trying to 
keep a keep a strong grip on the rejectionist Republican groups who were trying to sort of tear up the Good Friday Agreement. And my distinctive role was as what we would call an agent handler, working with human beings inside the terrorist organisations to try to keep people safe. So that was the first extended chunk of my career. Uh, the second extended chunk of my career was leading large teams of investigators trying to deal with the Al-Qaeda threat. So, for example, I was responsible for all of our counter-terrorist work at the time of the London Olympics, which clearly we all wanted to be remembered as a celebration of Britain and not as a security event. So those really were the, the first two extended chunks of my career, and I've done many other things along the way. OK, let's talk about being an agent handler. How? What does that mean in practice? You're You're working with people who don't, are employed by my five they're normal members of the public who are acting as agents for my five how do you identify them woo them keep them on side what what's the, what's the role that you're 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 finding and then keeping agents uh work with you so to, to imagine a typical case imagine you have a a group of maybe five terrorists say who've all committed together to following some kind of ideology and trying to make some kind of terrorist uh, activity happen uh, my job at that time was to try to persuade, say, one member of that terrorist cell to work with me instead, to stay in the terrorist cell, but work with me or people like me to help keep people safe. And that's a hell of a challenge. If you walk into that room to meet a member of, say, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or the IRA, you know, in their eyes, you are probably their sworn enemy. So you can imagine the professional challenge of how do you find some piece of connection with that other human being to persuade them to do the right thing and work with us. I mean, it sounds terrifying, because at any moment, presumably, somebody could take your suggestion that they might like to work for my five quite badly. Yes, that is always a risk for which you can plan. But in the end, you know, these situations are all unique and you have to sort of go in there with all the planning and teamwork behind you, but you do have to sometimes take a risk and find a way to build that connection and convince someone to do something that they will not have previously ever thought of doing. And you might not manage to do that in one go. It might be that you chip away gradually at their preconceptions about who you are and what you stand for. And also you might chip away at some of what they might imagine to be true about their terrorist organisation. But over time, you would be surprised how often it does prove possible to make these relationships work. I'm slightly imagining, which is almost certainly wrong, a sort of Sherlock Holmes approach of, you know, the dog hair, maybe we could talk about dogs or someone who's, you know, uh, they're biting their nails. They're so, you know, they're clues, certain things that, that, that you look out for to try and get that in with someone. So I'm not sure I'm going to sort of follow you down the Sherlock Holmes road. That's <laughs> 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 a go. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, human beings are fascinating, aren't they? Everyone is unique and everyone has complex makeup in their character. And so often it will be the case that it might be the initial bridge of connection you can build with someone isn't by going directly at terrorist ideology, for example, but you might find some other point of human connection. It might be sport, it might be some shared interest, you know, who knows? But you need to do your homework properly to give yourself the best chance of building initially quite a thin bridge and then over time a thicker bridge to that other human being. So if, if you... Uh, when you talk about sport, does that mean that you go in? Uh, do you say that you're a Rangers or a Celtic fan, or do you, or do you have to pretend? Are you, are you different football su supporters depending on who you're talking to? So you would have to expect <laughs> me over the years to have tailored you've my supported, approach. You supported every team, <laughs> absolutely. So much. <laughs> who do you really support? Do you know this is going to sound like such a cop out, but the true answer is that I come from uh, a family of supporters of the third team in Glasgow. Partick Thistle. Ah. So 
they are very diplomatic. nil, as yes. Billy Connolly used to refer to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very diplomatic. Right, let's bring you in then, Neil. Um, Ken wanted to be a postman and ended up running MI5. What did you want to be? I, I'm slightly in awe listening to Ken, because I know <laughs> Ken's background. I know all the agent handling stuff. And, of course, we do an awful lot of that in policing as well, but it is still incredible to listen to. Um, I grew up and no person in the media I've ever spoken to believes me at this point but I'm going to tell you I wanted to be a journalist but I was too shy I actually wanted to be a war correspondent my great heroes are in foreign correspondence or actually were Woodward and Bernstein which will betray my age <laughs> now, that's what I wanted to do and I always think it's interesting I ended up as a cop because again the close relationship between journalists and cops has always been because we're investigators yeah. who want to get to the heart of the truth. You know? And working sources and speaking yeah, to people absolutely. you might not and always like yeah. or agree with. I've never found any <laughs> journalist that I didn't have something in common with when I spoke to them, which is a, a remarkable thing given that we've, we've had a slightly competitive um, you know, <laughs> edge between our professions at times, but that's what I wanted to be. So that's, that's really interesting. So how did you end up then go, ending up in the police instead? Oh, it's an incredibly long story. I mean, like Ken, I'm really proud of the fact that we, this is my 29th year of policing and we all started, you know, on the shop floor yeah. doing the job that all, so many of our sort of brave men and women do every day. Um, and I'm really proud of that. But I, I didn't originally start off wanting to be a cop. I I was too shy when I was a kid to get my job on my local newspaper and actually get that journalist thing. And I kind of drifted through education into university had a bad car accident. I was actually trying to join the army and I couldn't do it because of the accident. So I went into university, became, um, you know, studied economics and I was part of the Thatcher generation, you know, the kind of loads of money generation. We all thought we were going to be Gordon Gecko for <laughs> people old enough to remember Wall Street. And I would end up being, you know, in corporate finance. And that's exactly where I went. And I couldn't stand it. <laughs> so uh, the private sector values that I came across in those days, in the late 80s and early 90s, were nothing that I, were f I was familiar with. Um, and I eventually said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I resigned and I applied to join the police. And my father and my mother were a doctor and a nurse, the NHS, 90 years of service in the NHS between them, incredible people. Um, and my father has, had become a general practitioner late in his career and for the previous 40 years had been a police surgeon. So I'd been surrounded, and I grew up in a town where either the RAF or the police were my referees on a Saturday or a Sunday morning. <laughs> so I'd grown up with lots of positive role models around this, and I thought I wasn't bright enough to be a doctor like my dad, and, and my mother ended up as somebody who was effectively setting the exams for nurses. I just couldn't do science, so I was never going to follow in their footsteps. They got my eldest brother as a doctor. They're happy. And I thought, I'll do this. And, of course, they were terrified, and I've never looked back. I think they thought I'd last 29 minutes, <laughs> not 29 years, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it from the very first job I had to this one. Well, like I said, you've been there for a long time, so you obviously, obviously like it. Uh, Ken, in terms of the MI5, when you look at sort of the history of it, when it was, you know, it was all uh, connections, Oxbridge connections and who you knew, and it was quite posh and uh, um, uh, almost elitist. That seems to be the impression anyway. How did you find MI5 when you arrived? And what's it like now by comparison? Is it all uh, sort of men, Oxford dons, all swanning about, uh, <laughs> hiding things in copies of the Financial Times? Uh, thank you for that question, Matt. <laughs> uh, so as of today, 47% uh, of MI5's people are women. So it's not all men. Uh, and it's not all Oxford Dons, you know, as your question sort of nods towards, I'm not the sort who grew up um, expecting to receive some tap on the shoulder. I didn't go to Oxbridge. Uh, and 
you know, MI5 would be a poor organization at what it does if everyone looked the same. If you could spot an MI5 person <laughs> coming, we probably wouldn't be terribly good at our job. So we are a diverse organization these days. When I joined in the mid-90s, if I'm honest, I sort of wasn't sure how much I would fit in. You know, I was very aware of my difference, kind of traveling down from Glasgow, slightly raw new recruit. Um, and I found that I liked the people I was working with. I liked that sense of we are here together to keep the country safe. And I liked the, the fact that people weren't um, standing on ceremony. And I liked the fact that people grow through this work. You know, in, in life, if you want to grow, don't do the easy thing, do the difficult thing. On MI5, I watch every day growing people in our organization by giving them difficult things to do in teams, including with teams in Neil's organization and many others besides. What, what do people call you in the office? Ken. <laughs> that seems like the obvious answer. I suppose there's an overlap. Both organizations, you want your staff to look like the country that you're policing or you know Absolutely. partly because it's good if there is that representation but also if you're trying to blend in and and Indeed. make those connections so we are we are more representative today than we were when i joined but we are still not fully representative of the country that we exist to protect and that's one of the reasons for doing moments like this is to try to reach some of those people who rule themselves out and i wish they didn't so if and i know one of the things we've done recently is join uh, instagram mm. uh, um as an organisation rather than mm. you personally. And maybe you're on it as well, I don't know. Uh, but uh, if someone's listening to this and think, oh, maybe I quite like the idea of finding out, how c how do you go about applying to be an MI5 agent? You uh, Please do if you're listening to this and thinking about it. You go to the MI5 website and you follow the links and you take it from there. And we just need brilliant people. We don't need people fitting one particular profile and just on instagram for what it's worth uh so we've been on instagram now for a few weeks uh we've got over a hundred thousand followers and the data that we've received from instagram uh so not secret intelligence but the, just the regular data from instagram shows that the five cities where we have managed to have the most followers run as follows in order london moscow manchester leeds bristol wow that's very good with all those recruits in Moscow that you're going to be signing up very soon. Uh, although I, a, a little bird tells me that um, uh, you've got far more followers already than GCHQ, which apparently has gone down absolutely fine. Do you know what? I'm just not going to bite on that. <laughs> <laughs> Can I? <laughs> Other good careers are available. Yes, exactly right. Just, exactly uh, right. Also, the people. Let's talk about this. Are recruiting so, now. so uh, Ken, you're uh, here as, uh, as the head of MI5. Neil, because you're the most senior counterterrorism officer, but you'll work together as part of this. Uh, there's lots of acronyms here. CTOC, the Counterterrorism Operations Centre, born out of those attacks in 2017, uh, because the review had found that. I mean, it, the, the obvious conclusion is that what happened in 2017 was in part because there wasn't enough information sharing. And I mean, is that a fair reflection, Neil? The the the, the lessons of those what was it, five five terror terror attacks in in 2017 that there wasn't enough communication between the different agencies. Can I just say something before we start? Because yeah. I'm not sure that is a fair character okay. uh, characterization in all fairness. But my, my job then, I was the first deputy to the role I hold now. So called the senior national coordinator. My job, you know, there's a huge job description that goes with it. It's very simple. If you boil it down into one line is my job was to work with Ken's teams and stop terrorist attacks in the UK. And in that year, which is by far the worst year of my career, five attacks, 36 innocent people died and many, many hundreds were injured. 
uh, and people often forget to talk about the injury, catastrophic yeah. physical and psychological injury. And I th I've said this many times publicly, including at the Manchester Inquiry. I think about that every day. Even my own lawyers turned around and said, you can't say that, because that's not true, is it? It absolutely is. The only reason I took this job when Mark Rowley retired was to try and make sure that all the work we'd done looking at what happened in 2017 was actually came to fruition, you know, of which the absolute pinnacle is the CT Operations Centre. And that's about being much better at working together. And yes, that does involve sharing data and intelligence, but it would be wrong to assume that somehow there wasn't data sharing, there wasn't intelligence sharing, and somehow we'd had to fix that. This was about good to great. You know, I used to go around the world, as Ken's teams do, as Ken does, saying that effectively we have one of the most effective counterterrorism machines in the world, and the world comes to us to find out how we do it. And the reason for that is the relationship that Ken and I have, the relationship that all of our people in the organisation to the bottom have. But actually this is a question of complex areas of how data is collected, analysed, how it's distributed, what systems it's on, what intel boring stuff like ICT that no one wants to talk about. It's how we get better at doing that and it's how we get better at working in part with partners that actually are not in the national security community. They're outside, you know, the doctors, the teachers, the social workers, the um, people in the uh, employment offices, the people who can help us spot the risk earliest are actually people who are working in communities alongside people who might be becoming extremist or radicalised. And getting the information from them into our machine is one of the, one of the key lessons we learned. Uh, Ken, how many pieces of information are we talking about that you're trying to... And I suppose it's one of those things, whenever there is uh, a successful attack, often there is evidence that there was a piece of information that was passed on to one agency or another. But this is not, you know, there was an otherwise empty desk and there was one piece of it. How many pieces of information are you, are you getting and how reliable are they and what is the process of sifting them? Yeah, so you are in the, in, the, in the regions of thousands of potential leads coming in the front door every month. And so for my teams, jointly with Neil's teams, one of the hardest parts of our job, which people don't often sort of think of, is that initial, we call it triage, you know, the initial look at how credible is this information, how much risk might there be in here, what can we do about it? And you have to make difficult decisions based on fragmentary information. And I think often people imagine that Neil and I, you know, will spend our evenings kind of fretting about the big monumental cases that are visible and in our faces. And those cases are difficult and they require difficult decisions and sometimes they require courage. But much more of the risk that we're trying to wrangle with the whole time is invisible to us. And it's these fragmentary leads kind of come in on and effectively on a conveyor belt to our teams and they have to sift through them and try to find the real nuggets of sharp risk amidst a much wider volume of people who chat about terrorism and might aspire to do something one day and might even believe it themselves and talk to their friends about it, but they won't actually follow through, but a minority will. And in our line of work, you know, what we're always there to challenge ourselves to do is, you know, the day after the attack are the things that you will wish you had done the day before. And if you can think of them now, then do them before. And so the 2017 work, I see as the, as the next stage in a multi-decade journey that we've been on already, where we are always trying to just shave the percentages in our favour, you know, finding hidden threats that people are deliberately trying to conceal within a free society is not an easy job to do. But there are things that we can do and that we do do with data. There are things that we can do around partnerships. And these things just slightly tilt the odds further 
in favour of our ability to keep our fellow citizens safe. And the CT Operations Centre, forgive the jargon, <laughs> is a bold further step to go beyond the 104 recommendations that we made together in 2017 and have since implemented because we know that, you know, perfect security, 100% security is impossible. But we believe that we owe it to our fellow citizens to always be striving to find that extra edge. It's quite a thin edge sometimes that we occupy over those who mean us harm. And if we can do extra things that tilt it further, we want to do those can things I, Can I make front. a really yeah. important point course, on this yeah. as well? I'm sure David wouldn't mind me saying this, but people always describe it as the Anderson Review or the Anderson Report. It wasn't. You know, David was sent in as the Home Secretary's representative to make sure that Ken and I and our teams were doing our job properly, which was actually a self-initiated review to make sure that we could be better. And it'd be interesting for your listeners to say what Ken has described, and we often we often get faced with this dilemma. They're two identical pieces of information from two identical people, one of whom is sitting in their bedroom and will never leave their bedroom and may be very young, and another piece of information which is going to be the committed hardened terrorists. But on face value, when they come in that front door, they look identical. I, I just, how do you how cope do you with choose? How do you choose and how do you cope with that day-to-day? -day, I mean, this applies to both organisations. Mm -hmm. The day-to-day -day pressure of knowing you've gone home and you've put that piece in the no pile... Yep. And at some point, and it could be next week, next month, next year, that piece that you put in the note, and you're doing that again and again and again. That's How right. do you cope with that pressure? So, so that is, a, is quite a neat description of exactly what is hard about working in our line of work. You know, we've been, we're having a fairly informal conversation here, Matt, but the, our two organisations are engaged in serious business. And the, the professionals who make up my workforce, hundreds and hundreds of them, mostly quite young, very committed, very able people, you know, we owe it to them to build systems that learn from experience and continually improve our ability to make the best decisions we possibly can about what to do with those fragmentary bits of information where you know up front that some proportion, some small proportion of that large pile will turn out to have been a vital clue to a piece of toxic risk. But up front, you don't get yeah. to know which ones are which. And that is a difficult challenge. And so we owe it to people to build that system, to be humble and know that we don't always know it all, and to keep striving, not just to keep the country safe today, but to force ourselves to imagine how we can keep the country even safer tomorrow. And that's what this current CT Operations Centre proposal is so all about. After, after Manchester, I, uh, and this is because our relationship is forged in fire, I hope Ken doesn't mind me saying we're close friends, not just professional colleagues. And one of my other close friends was Director of Operations for Ken back in 2017, and we became very close friends because of it. And he asked me to stand up in front of Ken's organisation, and straight after that, I'd literally just got back from Manchester and got back from the scene and stood up and spoke to an audience of MI5 staff, some of whom looked younger than my own children, uh, and had to explain to them that it wasn't their fault. It was the terrorist who did this. Um, as simple as that. And when you ask how people cope with the fine decisions they have to make every day. The, the short answer to that is sometimes not very well at all. And both of our organisations have lost people who blame themselves for judgments that they could not possibly have foreseen in advance because of the fine judgments that are made every day. And the last thing is we can't... We both have incredibly limited resources. The other thing everyone thinks is that we can follow everybody every minute of the day, or we're looking at you all now. That is not the case. So proportionality and necessity in our work is not just important because it's the law and it's human rights. It's important because we only have a limited amount of resource to look at the sharpest threat. 
one thing I wanted to speak to you about, and it, particularly because we're talking about you working together, I know you both worked very closely after Salisbury mm. uh, in 2018, uh, when two Russian agents obviously targeted Sergei and Julia Skripal. Um, what happens in a situation like that? What's the first thing? How do you find out about the possible use of a, a chemical uh, attack in, in on the streets of Salisbury? Ken, first of all, I'll come to you as well, Neil. How do you find, what, what's the first thing you do in that situation? Because presumably you're getting very, very early information in that situation. Yeah. So the, the first thing that you have to do is as rapidly as possible establish the facts, what is true. And there's lots of fog of war during the early hours, whether it's a terrorist attack or a nerve agent attack, where nobody really knows for sure exactly what is happening. But the task is as rapidly as possible to understand what we are facing. Because the most immediate thing that's on our minds is... Is there another wave of risk still to come in? Is it, you know, in, in the case of a terrorist attack, are the terrorists who did this still at large and might there be another attack ready to be mounted later today or tomorrow? So that is the most compelling immediate task is just to establish what on earth has happened. Typically, though not always, uh, it will be the case that when some attack takes place, it will turn out pretty quickly that we've got some previous trace or knowledge. You know, the, the, the media cliched headline is always so-and-so was quote-unquote, on MI5's radar. And from a professional standpoint, that is what you want, you know, clearly. Well, ask that, it's hard to know what's worse. Someone not being on your radar That's at right. all, in mm -hmm. which case, what are you doing? That's right. Or they were on your radar, in which case, what are you doing? And you face questions either way. You do, and, and that is absolutely inherent in the nature of our role. The nation needs someone to hold that role, and it falls to MI5 and the police to do that. And in those cases where, you know, if it's a choice between we knew nothing at all or we knew something, I would far rather take the latter because it means we were close to being able to stop something, even if, in some instances, to our you know devastating regret, we don't always manage to get ahead. For every one attack that takes place, we manage between us to stop three or four or five, you know, depending on, on when you're talking about. And that ability to, to, to grab hold of those initial threads of leads and rapidly assemble a, a coherent picture of what has happened is vital and I would rather be an organisation that stopped most attacks and on those horrible tragic occasions had some information that on a better day just might have got us over that line than be an organisation that just had no clue and that these things just descend from the sky and we had no previous knowledge of any sort but to use the media cliche you know someone being on MI5's radar quote unquote cannot be the same as someone being under a detailed microscope day by day because you are talking about thousands upon thousands of people in a free society so we are always trying to strive to do what is the most proportionate way to keep our fellow people in this country safe and also one of the our most important jobs and ken said it was to stop the continuing threat yeah and if that tiny bit of information because they once appeared in one of our cases somewhere means we've got an immediate lead so what the public needs to know is this is not going to continue and you can stop it and you can get ahead of it. And one of the early things that we have to do is get out there and reassure the public that they're not in continuing danger. If we can't do that, we are working 24-7 through our organisations, piling as many people into the problem and as much specialist capability into the problem to give the public that reassurance. And as Ken says, we've stopped many, many more than have got through. Yeah, what, can you put a number on that? How many, of the, how many attacks do you stop? So in the last four years, working together, we have stopped 29 terrorist plots against this country. So it's a substantial volume yeah. business for us, I'm afraid to say. And, it, and on the subject of, because Salisbury was so extraordinary, and for, you know, I don't want to say we're used to 
bomb attacks in the UK, but that, that's something that has become all too familiar. But so, so it was so extraordinary. Is that an isolated case? Have there been other instances of Russia trying to assassinate people in the UK? Well, you'll, you'll doubtless recall the 2006 assassination of Alexander Litvinenko. I was MI5 at that time, and so therefore those of us with slightly longer careers in this line of work, when Salisbury happened in 2018, it, it immediately took us back to the relatively recent previous instance of Russian state-backed murder on UK soil. And have there been incidences since? So you, I, you'll be aware that we have not had any episodes of the sort of Salisbury, but clearly the work continues. Well, but I suppose what I would say of the twenty-nine that you're talking about, have some of those been similar to, to uh, Russia? The, the twenty-nine figure I referenced yeah. a minute ago was is, is in the counter-terrorist portion okay. of our work together. So that's Islamist extremists and right-wing terrorists. Well, in fact, let's 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 move on to that now and where the threats now come from. Uh, on the uh, on Islamist uh, terror attacks, have we moved from the sort of big? Uh, attacks, you know, coordinated, you know, directed by Al Qaeda to uh, people being inspired by Al Qaeda, you know, whether it's lone wolf or whatever you want to call them, but essentially someone now with a knife or a car wreaking havoc rather than some great plot which involves lots of people and, and that sort of thing. What, Neil, what, what sort of shift has there been that you've seen? I definitely think we've seen that shift and we've seen it probably over the last decade and uh, of course, but over the last five years, you know, military successes overseas have made it very difficult for organisations like Al-Qaeda and uh, and the Islamic State uh, in the Levant to actually project their threat. So what they've become is online propaganda and that's what's inciting people quite often at the fringes of society, quite often in very vulnerable, quite often um, very fixated and you used a term that we don't use because terrorists like that term because it glorifies them and then we moved to lone actor and that didn't really describe them because effectively the research will tell us and post-attack research or post-disruption of that activity will tell us they've spoken to somebody mm. they've leaked their plans their plots or their behavior or their attitude has given a clue to what they were going to do we call them self-initiated terrorists now because effectively they're radicalizing themselves they're actually going online they're seeking out um, what they probably would have seen from uh, a physical charismatic influencer or radicalizer in person in a venue. And if I was talking about on the Islamist side, there would have been uh, mosques or madrasas who were involved in that kind of activity back in the day. And there would have been pubs involved in right wing terrorist, you know, cliques getting together and trying to incite each other into violence. We're seeing that's now much more online and it's much more individuals with lots of complex needs, grievances problems and that is a common factor between both islamist terrorism now and right-wing terrorism and chemical does that make your job harder there aren't sort of networks and threads that you can pull because you're trying to find if not lone individuals they're not connected in the same yeah. way i'll give you a two-part answer to that matt if i may so firstly there are still networks and mm. and those bigger more coordinated plots are still a risk um, so we do need to keep uh, on that task. But alongside that, you're, you're absolutely right that numbers-wise, more of the risk that we're seeking to manage these days is this sort of self-initiated terrorist that Neil describes. And one of the things that is then a challenge for us is if there is a, a less sophisticated plot, if you will, there's less preparatory activity, there's no overseas travel or training, it gives us fewer clues to try to detect in advance. And so that does really put a premium on a, us making really, really sharp decisions on which things we pursue or not, and B, B, 
being able to do things with massive pace and being able to get inside that kind of decision loop so that we are ahead of the terrace, which is another reason for the increasing integration that we are describing to you. We don't want to have a sort of stately process where there's a meeting scheduled to take place in three days' time. We want our teams to be co-located so that those synapses are firing with maximum speed. So people are talking all the time. Does a, does a, um, We've obviously seen in recent last few days and weeks an escalation in the Middle East, at what point does that translate into more potential trouble in the UK? I guess it depends, it depends. You know, we clearly have had episodes over the years where events in the Middle East have massively influenced the shape of the risk in the UK. And most obviously over the last decade, what's happened in Syria, where over 950 uh, UK-based individuals headed out there to join the Islamic State and other groups <clears throat> with a huge set of consequences for the risk that we've been seeking to manage together ever since. Um, it is also the case sometimes that you'll see events flare up in other parts of the world which don't necessarily translate into increased risk back here, though sometimes it will. So it's too soon to say on the current flare-up that you're describing. But obviously there is a complex relationship here between global events and more individual social radicalization processes. It's not a linear thing, and we've got a, you know, a deeply expert team of behavioral scientists that look quite deeply at how these things play off against each other because terrorism is not as simple as it can often be portrayed. And just because one thing's happened in the past, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen again. Just on this, on a similar point, obviously the, we've seen an uh, escalation in violence in Northern Ireland as well. How worrying is that for you, for your, for your two organisations? So from my point of view, you know, clearly, as I, as I said earlier in this interview, I spent most of the first decade mm. of my career working with lots of committed, able people seeking to make Northern Ireland a safer and better place. And for the most part, the agreement that the communities reached in 1998 and the Belfast Good Friday Agreement has worked. Yes, there are rejectionist groups who have tried to pull that down, but they haven't had community backing and they haven't presented uh, a terrorist risk on the scale that we've seen in the past from Northern Ireland. We've still got plenty of work to do over there. And so if we were to move to a time where there was more widespread violence, disorder, and potentially then translating into more terrorism, that would be a very serious challenge for us, clearly, because we've got more than enough to be doing with Islamist extremist terrorism, with right-wing terrorism, and with the rise of various forms of state threat. But that's not something you've seen, you know, whether it's, you've got to go back to the beginning of this year, it started with Brexit, the, the whole sort of melting pot of things, but that so far hasn't translated into sort of setting things flashing on your dashboard. So, no, so I mean, my responsibility uh, in policing terms is when that threat from Northern Ireland reaches the mainland. Yeah. So PSNI have a very effective counterterrorism machine um, that works very closely with Ken's people in Northern Ireland, and they will um, they manage their own borders. They're part of our network in that they've signed an agreement that says the resources that exist here on the mainland can be used to help Northern Ireland in Northern Ireland if that were necessary. That is a rare occurrence, but an even more rare occurrence is when that threat comes to the mainland yeah. post the Good Friday Agreement. You, you both have touched on the, the, the rise of far-right, uh, the, the, the threat of far-right uh, terrorism. As a sort of, how many cases overall are you sort of looking at any one time? And what's the proportion of, yeah. I mean, it feels like, you know, for the last decade, two decades, clearly Islamist terrorism has been the bulk of that. Is that shifting so a few minutes ago i referenced the 29 uh, late stage plot disruptions that neil's teams and yeah. mine have done together in the last four years of those 29 10 
where right-wing terrorist plots. So that gives you a sense that this is now um, still a minority slice, but a sizable slice of our shared counter-terrorist caseload. And within the, so that's the late-stage attack plots in the wide, in the much wider volume of investigations that we are running the whole time to try to identify and suppress threat. Roughly speaking, if if you imagine the Islamist uh, counter-terrorist casework and the right-wing counter-terrorist casework laid alongside each other, as as is how we run it, they are done by the same teams, same thresholds, same standards. About one fifth of the of the pile is right-wing terrorist casework, and the other four fifths is Islamist casework for the time being. So this may continue to shift. But and, ha- and how would that have looked five or ten years ago? So ten years ago, there was essentially no meaningful national security risk from right-wing terrorism so where's, where's in this that, country. where's that coming from? What's, fuel, what's fueling that, Neil? Well, I've got... It would be... You know, I'm not the great sort of um, sociologist and demographer <laughs> that's going to give you this, but I can tell you some professional experience. So, you know, I can take you through the history of right-wing terrorism in this country or right-wing extremism or fascism in this country. You know, we had our first right-wing terrorist group prescribed by Amber Rudd when she was Home Secretary in 2016. Prior to that, it was the British Union of Fascists in 1940. Now, in between those times, we've had the rise of the National Front just a year before I was born. So I lived with the repercussions of that through the 70s and 80s. You had British National Party in 82, Combat 18 as a security wing of British National Party in 1992. All of these things became a fading force. So you didn't really see any manifestation of this threat in anything other than public order, some domestic extremism, some thuggery and hooliganism, and largely alcohol fueled and largely from a particular demographic. That's changed, and it started changing, we think, um, from probably around the mid-2010s. So 2013 is when national action started to be formed. Younger, tech-savvy, online, creating an organisation that did actually have an ideology moving towards violence and race war and white supremacism. Um, Now, of course, when the most awful event happened in 2016 was the murder of Joe Cox as an MP, uh, and the organisation that celebrated that was this particular organisation, and they were prescribed on the back of clearly representing a major threat. And that's when it really started to turn, I think. And there were a lot of things happening worldwide, not just in this country, a rise of nationalism, a sense of xenophobia or inward-looking by some states, and you saw... Here, the referendum, the polarisation of society, giving a kind of permissive environment to people to talk in a way that perhaps had been suppressed for many years. Now, if you take the fringe elements of that, because it's always the fringe elements, you know, people having a debate, however obnoxious it might be, if it's a legitimate debate or it's, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's not where Ken and I are remotely interested. We're interested in where extremism tips over into lethal violence, and that is the terrorist threshold we're looking for. And what was happening is there were groups of people starting to plot and plan along that, along those lines. And when we had the Finsbury Park attack in 2017, there was a very clear wake-up call that actually we had to do something more in this area than we were capable of doing alone. And I'm very grateful to MI5 for stepping forward and saying, well, actually, we need to do much more in this space. Uh, and that's precisely what they've done, you know, starting from 2018, looking at how they could help with that threat to taking full responsibility for it last year, in April last year. And I think what's then happened is we're seeing more of it because I've got the might of Ken's machine looking at it. So I can't tell you now whether we're seeing more of what was already there or whether it's actually grown. Yeah. My professional judgment is it's a bit of both, bit of unfortunately. Both. The, 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 
the, the number of cases growing, but you're also finding more of them yes. because you're you're being more proactive and, and looking for it. When um, you talk about it getting younger as well, mm. Ken, I mean, there's a sort of uh, image of you know white man of a certain age and they're shed with some Nazi memorabilia mm. essentially, and yet you've we got still have those two. Yes, yes, and they are you know they are an issue. Mm. But how how is this? Is it is it all down to online radicalisation? How young are we talking about? What sort of age children are being radicalised by the far right? Yes, so. It's not all down to online, but it is the single most visible um, feature of this threat, even more so than with Islamist extremist radicalisation. With the right-wing terrorist groups, not groups, really individuals, we are seeing uh, a very substantial portion of our casework relating to teenagers. And therefore, do we mean like nineteen-year-olds or thirteen-year-olds? No, we, we we often mean minors under sixteen. We've we have seen casework as young as thirteen, yeah. um, and clearly, when you get to that age group, it's it's very difficult for us to sometimes to figure out what is the right approach here because for most of our casework most of the time when people are trying to plan towards very serious crimes the right answer is to do the full criminal justice system prosecution trial before a jury all of those things but if you have a 13 or 14 year old they might well present very sharp risk in some cases i'm sad to say but there's also a big safeguarding response. These are children, and we don't want to be sort of coming in with the sledgehammer of the state if there is another way to manage this risk. And so very often, perhaps sort of counter-culturally for what people might imagine of our organisations, we are most keenly trying to find if there is some non-criminal justice way that can keep the public safe, keep these young people safe themselves, but pull them away from this ideology. Sometimes they don't give us a, another choice, I'm afraid to say. But for the last six years, people will have heard me talking very loudly about the Prevent strategy, which is a government strategy. It's a pillar of contest. It is the most controversial of those four pillars of contest. But actually, it's all about safeguarding the most vulnerable people in society who are being duped and groomed by radicalizers who want them to commit the acts of violence. It's amazing how many of these charismatic, influential people don't get their hands dirty. They're looking for the weakest and the most suggestible members of society. And Prevent is all about finding people long before they become extreme, before they become radicalised, before they become committed to a path that's going to see them, and my organisation ended up you know, putting them before a court. We don't want that. We actually want to save them. Ken, just because Neil touched on it, the, the role of the Brexit referendum in the way you know it's changed everything in the country, it's changed the way the country's run, it's changed a lot of the discourse. What's your assessment of the impact that's had on the on creating the gateway potentially to some people being radicalised by the far right? I think in truth, from when, from what we see in our current casework in 2021, we aren't seeing a meaningful linkage at all, actually, between sort of constitutional politics and the Brexit conversation and the right-wing terrorist risk that we are dealing with. As Neil said, our casework is not dealing with sort of people's views and mouthy individuals in the public square, we are there to do a much more focused role, which is to try to identify and sift for the, the terrorist risk, which we know is there, as I said a minute ago, yeah. 10 disruptions in the last four years. And I don't see attitudes around Brexit or other forms of kind of mainstream political debate particularly motivating these people. It's much more a subculture of online echo chambers, individual personal and social circumstances and and a loose soup of whether it's white supremacism or latter-day nazism or very strong anti-semitism or anti-islamic views you know you see a, it's not really a coherent single ideology in, in the way that arguably islamist extremism can pr at least purport to be so with the right-wing terrorist scene it's it's much more atomized than that 
and I wouldn't be drawing a particular linkage yeah. to the, the uh, exit of the UK from the EU. Both of you have touched on the fact that this is ha- increasingly happening online and this, this radicalisation uh, of both groups. Do you think, we'll start with you first of all, Ken, has MI5 got the tools it needs to deal with plots and radicalisation happening on the internet? We have many of the tools that we need. And, you know, I'm not going to give you a three decimal places answer on exactly how we uh, how we go about that part of our business. But it is also true uh, that some things online are challenging. And the, the sharpest version of that is the ongoing debate that you'll be aware of around end to end encryption that is being proposed by some of the major service providers. And that does pose a real risk for us. And there's a real conversation that has not yet reached a satisfactory place. Uh, and that's a great concern to me. And to Neil. Let's explain what end-to-end encryption means, because not lots of people won't know. Uh, so if I'm posting a message on Facebook Messenger, mm-hmm. what uh, is the current situation and what is Facebook proposing when it comes to end-to-end encryption? And what impact would that change have on what you, you do? So at the moment, <clears throat> those messages are potentially accessible to appropriate authorities with the right legal warrant instruments and so forth to understand what is happening uh, between in the communication that you might be having with, a, with another person. In the proposed state of affairs, Facebook uh, is proposing to move to a situation where the message that you would be sending to a friend of yours would be completely encrypted during its transit from you to your friend. And this does pose a problem. And it's important, I think, to be clear about the nature of the problem. Mark Zuckerberg, as as Facebook's uh, chief executive, talked a couple of years ago about Facebook shifting from being the public square to, in effect, being everyone's living room. And he said, you know, it's important that we have privacy in our living rooms. I don't think the state should have a camera in everyone's living room. And Neil and I could not agree more with that statement. We absolutely do not want to live in a society where the state has a camera in everyone's living room. But our job is to deal with the one in a million case where the living room is a terrorist living room and they may be building a bomb or filming a martyrdom video before some you know, airline t- devastating plot that they might be planning. And in that unusual, thankfully very rare situation, if you imagine the real world analogy of an actual living room where a terrorist is building a bomb, if we've got sufficient grounds to believe that that's what's happening in that room, we would submit a warrant application to a Secretary of State, usually the Home Secretary, and an independent senior judge would approve if they agreed also, and we would then be able to access that room, have a look at whether a bomb is indeed being built or not. And we need to have that ability online also. If you have end-to-end default encryption with absolutely no means of unwrapping that encryption, you are in effect giving those rare people, terrorists or people who are organising child sexual abuse online, you know, some of the worst people in our society are given a free pass where they know that nobody can see into what they are doing in those private living rooms. And this is an unsolved problem which needs proper attention. We are not in any way seeking some form of surveillance state. What we do need is that on those rare occasions where there is a concern of very, very substantial proportions, that when a Secretary of State and a judge has agreed that access to that information is necessary and proportionate, we do need the the companies to have built a means for us to work in partnership with them in that rare case to access the content of those communications. That's all, not for the rest of society, but just in those exceptional cases where the risks to the public are acute.
So when we when we talk about tech companies and and your access to it, is it people use the phrase? Is it, are you asking for a back door into people's private messages? No, we're not. I I don't recognise the phrase backdoor, and I don't think it's accurate. It carries a sort of implication or connotation that we're sort of sneaking in in an improper way. As I was describing earlier, what we have here is a situation where, in the exceptional case, where somebody is building a bomb or some other you know sharp and acute threat to our security, we will submit a warrant application, a legal instrument, to a Secretary of State and to an independent senior judge. And if they believe that what we are proposing is necessary and proportionate, then the warrant is approved and we would then want to work with the company. So if any door is being used here, it would be the front door. You know, not in a way that would alert the terrorist that that's what we were doing, but working with the company to gain access simply to the, the very narrowly defined amount of content that would be covered by that warrant application. So this backdoor thing... I'm really not keen. I, I don't think it's an accurate description at all of what we are proposing. How often at the moment are you making those applications and gaining access to Facebook and other sites in terms of doing doing the thing you're talking about that you can do at the moment, but you can't? What sort of sca- How big a slice of your yeah. capability would it be if that was switched off? Yeah. So I, I, you wouldn't expect me to get into detailed <laughs> figures, but it's a matter of public record that at any given moment, Neil's teams and mine are running hundreds of investigations, which include within their scope several thousand individuals. And if you imagine the lives that all of us lead nowadays, where pretty much everyone has at least one smartphone, perhaps a tablet, you know, it's not that we're monitoring all the communications of all of those individuals, but you can see that you quite quickly get into this is activity of assault that happens thousands of times a year you don't have many plots at the moment carried out entirely by post essentially everyone lives their lives online and so exactly the people so. you're dealing with uh, are online too it's interesting ken and i first met um when we were the leads for our respective professions on the investigatory powers act so i think the big thing for the public listening to this is to understand when we were doing that i was amazed at the number of people at very high levels in our society who thought a police constable could rock up and get access to all of this capability without going through a massive senior management chain, often right up to Ken or I, and then through a Secretary of State and then through a judge in order to get some of these incredibly powerful tools. And it is at the very sharp end of society. So I love the living room analogy. I mean, we used to talk about if someone opened a pub in your hometown and the only people allowed inside were criminals and terrorists and paedophiles and murderers, but you weren't allowed to let Ken or I inside who might want to stop that. That was completely out of limits. You'd be a very odd resident if you thought that that was a reasonable way to behave in society. And I think with social media companies deciding to put your privacy before your security, I think they also think that they're, out, you know, they're outing their own risk in this whole debate. You know, they don't have to do anything about it because nobody can see it. So it's not their... It's not their responsibility. But they're making that decision up front. Yeah. And, you know, if my great friend and our great friend Lynn Owens from the National Crime Agency was, I made my reputation encountering organised crime, not terrorism. The problem there is acute. Millions of records of child abuse will be lost like that overnight. You know, lives will be lost because of this decision. And I think it's important to say it. Uh, and uh, it sounds to me like of all the th- things that you're most worried about whether it's you know what's happening in Kabul or Belfast or actually what's happening in Silicon Valley poses potentially the biggest threat to the work that you do so I, I, I'll be careful how I answer that one because often what's happening in Silicon Valley and in other areas is very helpful to us so the, those companies have stepped forward on removing for example lots of terrorist instructional material from the internet so I do want to be balanced in my comments here 
But it is the case, especially around default encryption, that yes, decisions taken in California boardrooms are every bit as relevant to our ability to do our jobs as decisions taken in Afghanistan or Syria. And when uh, we, people talk about the, the, the threats, I mean, I suppose it, it's a distinction that maybe journalists make more than anything else, a distinction between real life and online. Mm-hmm. That Actually, the point that you're making is those things are entirely joined up. Um, what about the, the impact of lockdown and there are, what's happened in the last 12 months? Because, I mean, everyone's spent their lives on Zoom calls and, you know, if you've been working from home. Um, has that... Uh, meant there would be more people at home online potentially being radicalised or has it broken up some of the connections? Like, Has lockdown been good or bad for your, your trade, I suppose, is what I'm asking. And, and I suppose my answer to what you're asking is both. Yeah. So, yes, we have seen more online living with people even more sucked into whatever they were already you know, part of beforehand. So lots of conversations online encryption is therefore a problem for us and people sort of stewing in their bedrooms but alongside that uh, the lockdowns have had some useful suppressive effect on some terrorist networks they've certainly suppressed overseas travel by you know spies and terrorists just as much as as they've suppressed overseas travel by the rest of society so it has been a mixed phenomenon Um, so far you know we've had to make some really tough prioritization decisions over the course of the last year in order for us not to expose our own staff recklessly to risk we've had to be very disciplined in how we run our buildings we've had to to ask our people to come in when most of society was not doing so that we had no option other than to find a disciplined way of being covid secure regularly testing ourselves examining the data and then judging how much of our capacity we could have online at any given moment and we've done a quite a good job of that but as always in these jobs we won't know the full effect for a couple of years because it might be for all we know sat here today that something that we missed last year that we would otherwise have been watching has planted a seed that might come back to haunt us in the future it goes back to some of what you were asking us about earlier but thus far um, we have managed as far as we can tell to get through a period of very intense prioritization and disciplined covid working in a way that has continued to keep the country safe but we won't know what we don't know for now because i was going to ask you about that but it's, it's obviously quite difficult to be a spy working from home but also it's quite difficult you know if there aren't crowds to blend into and you know that sort of thing how do you go about doing that work you know if you can't meet people whether that's agents or carrying out surveillance and that sort of thing and presumably even you know going back to your living room analogy you can't put a camera in somebody's front room if, if they, they never, never leave the house <laughs> you so might. how do you do all of that or, or is that what essentially what you're saying the prioritization that you're having to make so it, it, common sense will tell you that it's it's in your question anyway matt <clears throat> that you can't so easily do covert surveillance on empty streets and it's very difficult covertly to to plant a you know covert microphone in a living room if the person is always there sat on that sofa and and not going out so it has demanded additional creativity in terms of how we go about doing what we do you wouldn't expect me to give you a sort of in-depth answer as to exactly which bits of tradecraft have evolved although that's incredibly useful for all of our serious villains who are going to be permanently chained to their couches (laughs) if they do remain permanently chained to their couches that might be quite a good outcome it's a good good piece of social control and as we come out of lockdown what are your uh, concerns because obviously you know one of the obvious things is that there will then be crowds on the streets and you know in a way there haven't been for the last 12 months so my deputy was out last week doing a media publicity launch for public vigilance so I do want, we've always used the expression alert, not alarmed, because I've always thought part of our jobs was to reduce the fear of terrorism as well as actually to stop it. 
So, um, you know, the public is looking forward to, you know, they can see some light at the end of the tunnel, this cautious easing that we're going through. It will bring some risk. There is no doubt about it that, as Ken says, COVID has suppressed some of that risk. And the most important thing is to remember to be vigilant. And, you know, businesses are stepping forward to help us. We've got a, a thing called the Protect Duty the government's consulting on at the moment, trying to get businesses to make sure that their staff know what to do, what to look out for, um, what to report, what suspicious behaviour actually looks like. And uh, Matt, my deputy, who's the deputy assistant commissioner who runs Protect and Prepare for the country, has been out there talking about doing that very thing. And that that does concern me. And like Ken... The ramifications of 14 months, you know, of effectively suppressed activity and what that might mean in the future might not be immediately apparent, you know, and we'll have to keep a very close eye on what that has actually done to certain very vulnerable um, members of society. And Ken, is that your assessment as well for the coming months? I would agree with everything Neil's just said. We don't have um, a clear sense of exactly how this complex situation is going to play through but we do have lots of experience of watching fast evolving situations and making pretty good judgments on how to manage the risks that we see. Just a couple of things I want to ask before uh, we end there seems to be a particular when there have been in inquiries into uh, cases before there seems to be a particular problem with prison and the idea of de-radicalisation in prison and how effective those uh, um, schemes are. Jonathan Hall, the Independent Review of Terrorism Legislation uh, uh, said that there were concerns of the dis- uh, dissidents and disengagement programme uh, which was attended by Yusman Khan who carried out the attack at London Bridge after release from prison. Uh, there was no evidence it was working. And I just wonder how, I mean to some extent you're putting faith in those schemes working and if someone says that they have been de-radicalised you sort of hope that they have been but can we be sure that it's possible to de-radicalise someone, Neil? So I've got a, um, no, you can't be sure of that. There's nowhere in the world that is sure of that, you know, no matter what schemes other countries have put in place. Um, There's two things I'm really proud of about um, Britain, uh, and it's in the prevent pillar. And I've always described it as safeguarding and second chances. So there's no doubt the reason Ken needs an organisation like policing is we're the only ones with the powers to take your liberty away, to actually arrest you, to search your homes, to gather the evidence that's eventually going to be put before a British court jury of your peers which is actually going to convict you but once you're convicted if we've done our job right and we get there early and we don't get there when you've already plotted mass destruction um, you you're likely to be coming back out into the community at some point and there's got to be some way of managing somebody who comes back out into the community and we've learned that lesson a very hard way over the last few years that we need to do more in that space right from the moment we're looking at them but i said it earlier on in this interview prevent the safeguarding bit is actually stopping people before they even get into the criminal space so the best way to do this is not in desistance and disengagement with people who've already been convicted who are already hardened terrorists who already have deep-seated ideology or a conviction or a grievance it is going to be much harder to change that person's mind it's not impossible it's been done and sometimes those people go on to help us but that is very rare what does happen frequently is stopping people before they start and using the safeguarding approach that Ken described and I advocate. Uh, one final thing I want to ask you about, Ken, was the you, you, you've touched on a bit as well as counterterrorism. Uh, there's obviously the, the threats from overseas too, uh, and in particular, there's a big debate around fake news and the fake news within the UK, and then fake news that might come from uh, outside. What role does essentially MI5 have in sort of trying to police that? Yeah. So we. We don't have a role in policing it, <coughs> to use your word. Um, but we do work with others because there is clearly uh, quite a track record now 
of some states using their intelligence services or other sort of proxies uh, to, to sow disinformation and to try to drive wedges within other countries. And so that is something that we care about. Uh, there's you know, well-recorded examples of Russia in particular seeking to make quite uh, aggressive use of disinformation as a tool and we and other countries need to become resilient to it. Sometimes that is about pursuing the individual bits of activity and calling them out in public so that they are seen for what they are. Sometimes it's about us as, as a society becoming more resilient to some of these things that you just have to accept are going to be generated in in the internet. I suppose there's a difference between what's noise and what's having an impact and, and uh, affecting. And so in terms of, because you know, I know because I get these messages on Twitter all the time, are, are our elections secure in terms of being interfered with by other countries? So the United Kingdom enjoys a pretty secure way of actually voting so the, the the ways in which we register to vote and many people you know voting with a pencil in a booth it's quite hard to interfere with that with a cyber hacking elite unit on the other side of the world so the mechanics of voting are comparatively secure uh, where there is a thing is around people either pushing false information into the public domain and giving it more prominence than it might naturally have within our own society so there is a thing there although as you've just said the, it's quite difficult sometimes to prove how much of this has any real impact. And then there are separate questions, which is probably another interview for another day, about um, the influencing of individuals within the political system, political candidates. You know, there are difficult questions around funding and you know, various aspects like that that need, to, need to, to receive more attention in the decade that we're now in than they have needed to over the last couple of decades. And is that something that pl plays any part in your sort of day-to-day I mean, we've discussed everything we've discussed. Your uh, in trade is already pretty full. Is that something that you're sort of across at the moment? It, it has to be. You know, yeah. I, we don't have the luxury of saying, "Well, we don't fancy doing that because we're, <laughs> we'd rather just stick with the, the things we're already doing." So that's concern about trying to influence candidates, politicians, MPs, ministers. Yes, and not, and not only not only politics. There's a wider thing here about interference in other societies. Yeah. So, so don't don't take what I'm saying to be just about the, if you will, the Westminster Village. Uh, we <laughs> see. Not. <laughs> the government is is now in a process of consulting about around the proposed new legislation, the counter state threats bill, and the take home point in that piece for me is that it's not just about espionage, you know, the stealing of state secrets anymore. That still happens, and we still need to guard against it. But alongside that espionage, it's quite a wide range of uh, abilities to interfere with our economy, with our academia, with our democracy with our society and so the interference is, is a much wider and more complex challenge mi5 doesn't own all of it by any stretch but we do need to work in new partnerships with others the other day for example i was in quite an interesting conversation with some representatives of our universities around how original unique uk research and intellectual property uh, can best be safeguarded from foreign interference without cutting off the international collaboration, which is obviously the lifeblood of, of being strong in research in the first place. And I suppose so there's that, some complex challenges here. And that's something that probably universities haven't necessarily felt a need to give a lot of thought to in the past. They were getting on with doing the work of universities, and I suppose that's a, that's a need thing they have to think about. Now, I have, I'm slightly conscious, we've been, we've been talking more than an hour, and I haven't even mentioned James Bond, and it would be remiss of me. We can't have the end of... Uh, now, I know, strictly speaking, he's from MI6 and not MI5, but um, do you have a favourite Bond, Ken? I suppose being Scottish, I'm supposed to say Sean Connery, but I think my actual favourite Bond is Daniel Craig. And why is that? 
I think I think from his first movie from Casino Royale was he has captured something about the fictional character that is James Bond <laughs> that is I there, enjoy. Is there anything about a Bond film which bears any relation to any of the work that you've done at MI5? I would struggle to think of it. They are, they are, they are great movies. They really are, and I enjoy them as much. <laughs> I enjoy them as much as the next movie fan. Uh, but I don't frequently find myself watching a Bond film and thinking, "Oh, that's just like that." Was much, just to be like honest, much like watching journalists of films as well. They always have, I feel like I ought to ask you, Neil. Have you got a favourite Bond film? Well, I'm substantially older than Ken, just like my organisation, I might add. So mine actually is Sean Connery. Oh, there we are. And always was. And what about gadgets? Do you have gadgets at MI5? Yes, we have gadgets at MI5. What's your favourite gadget at MI5? I'm not going to answer that oh, question. That. <laughs> what, can I ask you about the train set? The train, the railway that you have at MI5? You can. What does it do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not your own personal chain. Now, I should be clear, because I mentioned this to a colleague earlier. How do you find out about this? It is on your website. It does actually. There we go. I should, I should read my own website more carefully. Uh, <laughs> Explain your well, your so the, the, This really is, is what I think is these days referred to as a piece of legacy technology. <laughs> In the days when MI5's ability to join the dots and piece together plots were, was done on paper files... The, there's a train set which enables large volumes of paper to be moved in all directions around the building. These days, including through the advent of the CT Operations <laughs> Centre, uh, we no longer nice. require the services of such a train set. Romantic though it still is. It sounds like you haven't got a train set then, Neil. No. You ought to get one installed. I, well, <laughs> it might be more effective than uh, my IT at times, I might tell you that. <laughs> Gents, it's been lovely to speak, you, speak to you. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Cameron Callum, head of MI5, and Neil Basu, uh, head of counterterrorism. Thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio.